Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena, and today our guest is a former UK Special Forces operative, best known for appearing on the hit Channel 4 TV show, SAS, Who Dares Wins. He is also the founder and managing director at Breakpoint, a training company that utilizes special forces techniques to deliver courses and workshops for corporate teams and leaders. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Ollie Ollerton to the podcast. Welcome, Ollie. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Hello, Serena. Thank you very much for the introduction. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So you definitely need to have a certain personality type to join the Special Forces. So can you explain to our listeners a little bit about what your life was like growing up and what motivated you to join the Special Forces in the first place? God, that's a complex, a complex question. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because I had a colourful upbringing. Um, I refer to this a lot, but really my first sort of memory of, of life on this planet or my entry, if you want to call it, into life on this planet was, uh, was 10 years old because I had such a traumatic experience at 10 that I can't remember anything prior to that. And that's when I was uh, attacked at a circus by a circus chimp that nearly killed me. Um, and the reason I always refer to it because it's, it's you know it's extremely significant. It had a massive effect on who I am today, and has been rather influential for some positive and I think more negative. Uh, well, I can't say more positive and more negative. It's just been, you know, it's been a massive influence on on my life since that point at ten years old because I didn't really deal with that trauma. But really, for me, the bottom line is that was my first break point. And break point is the moment you decide to step into the short-term discomfort for long-term gain. On that day in question, the short-term discomfort was me fighting a grown chimp at 10 years old. And the long-term gain of that is the fact I'm here to talk about it and I live that day. So, you know, also it taught me something else at a very young age. And that's regardless of what situation you find yourself in, we always have choices. We always have a choice. And, um, you know, it's important to, to make a note of that. So really, that was that was my sort of entry onto this planet that really pushed me into a very sort of um, I had a low uh, sense of consequence. I was quite um, unemotional or I am. I didn't really empathize with other people's emotions, I would say. I sound like your typical teenager anyway, don't I? <laughs> but really, you know, that made it, it, the bottom. What it did for me is it, it. I was always looking for that danger. I was always looking for to push the envelope as far as I could. It got me in a lot of trouble with the police, caused a lot of um, heartache with my family, especially my mum. And it was really at that point where, you know, I was so close to getting a, um, you know, a sentence at 13, 14 years old that it was a wake-up call for me. And that was the first time really my mum had, had, you know, I was one of three, I was the youngest, and it was really, my mum was going through a massive trauma, you know, divorce and everything. And for her, she really started to focus on me and made sure that all that energy I had was focused on one thing. And that's what I loved. And that was my fitness. That was a release for me. You know, my um, I was greatly into athletics, 1500 meter runner, cross country runner. And that's where she made sure my energy was directed, which was really important. And at 14 years old, I don't know what it was, but it was some sense of duty. My, fa- You know, I've got history in the family of, of the military, but I just thought the Royal Marine Commandos, something just clicked and it was like, this is where I'm going, which I think is quite a bold statement at 14 years old because I've got a 21-year-old son and he still doesn't know what he wants to do. 
I started to lose all kind of faith with the education system. I just didn't understand the point of it. And that was my, that's where I set my aim. Royal Marine Commandos. I managed to get into the Royal Marine Commandos, 18 years old, passed the 32 weeks training course, which was a very proud moment for me. And then I came back from Northern Ireland, then got called to Iraq, came back from Iraq, and I was quite deflated, to be quite honest. I don't know, it wasn't dangerous enough. I wanted to be at danger every day. And, and life as a peacetime soldier just wasn't really cutting it for me. It was a crossroads at that point. Go for the special forces or be a civilian. Now, the easy path there and the one that we're most inclined to take because we're always looking for the path of least resistance was to be a civilian. My commanding officer um, at that time um, was absolutely shocked that I was I was even considering that, which was a shock to me because I didn't really understand his belief in me as a soldier. So when I said I'm leaving, he said, look, I really think if you do leave, you're going to regret that for the rest of your life because I do believe you've got what it takes to get into the special forces. You know, it's a very arduous course, a very slim pass rate. And I didn't really have the confidence still at that point. I didn't have, you know, it was, I was I was plagued with self-doubt. I think that self-doubt came from the fact that I had idolized being in the military for so long since 14. I got there and it didn't live up to expectation. So what that created within me was self-doubt, lack of confidence, blah, blah, blah. But on that day, you know, and this is the power of leadership, is the fact that that man who I admired, basically he changed my life. You know, by saying those words, I felt I had a duty to to actually do the course for his belief in me. You know, it was those words that put me onto that course. And, and I turned up at Special Forces Selection, one of 280, and I got off the coach, looked around me, and straight away that self-doubt started to overwhelm me. I started to look for the path of least resistance, and that was to get back on the coach and say, you know, this is not for me. But a little voice in my head on that day said, Ollie, just do today. Just do today. And I just did today, just did that. And the, that day ended really well for me. First off the mountain, 24Ks over the penny van and back with 35 pound a kit. And I was beating all these people that I perceived were better than me. And I kid you not when I say that I did every day of the course like that, the six month course. And that was just do today, especially when it came into the interrogation phase, which was the hardest thing I'll, I've ever chosen to do. And that was just do the next second, just go the next millimeter, break it down to whatever I need to do, but make sure that I am continuing momentum moving forward and don't allow myself to sort of stand still and stagnate. And that's such an important message through everything we do in life because, you know, at the end of the day, when you've got a goal that scares you but excites you at the same time, which is a goal, that actually is a goal. When the pressure's on, you're going to start looking for the easy way out. You're going to start looking for the path of least resistance. And in those moments, and when it comes to mental health as well, you know, it's, it's about just do today. Just do this second. Just do this next millimeter. Really important message. Finally joined my team. Um, I was one of five out of 280 thereabouts that passed that course. And then I got to my team and realized the hard work just started. That was pretty tough. You were constantly training, not constantly on operations, because, you know, to be quite honest, back in my time, it wasn't... You know, the, we didn't have the wars in the Middle East and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, we weren't, weren't on operations all the time. But when we were, um, you know, any time we weren't, then we were training specialist skills and everything else. So it's, you know, it, it was it was full on, full on. But the thing for me is when I got to the special forces, I just the thing that was missing when I joined the military was still missing when I joined the special forces. And I expected it to be there. And I couldn't work that out. You know, I was thinking, look, this is every boy's dream. Hardly anyone passes this course. And still I was sat there disappointed and deflated and I couldn't understand. I didn't understand what that word purpose meant. 
I didn't even question purpose because I've never heard it before. Um, I just started to think, well, there's obviously something wrong with me. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know what to, what to do about it. And, and finally, I left. It took me six years to do anything about that. And then I left and um, decided to at last become a civilian. Said I'd never go back to a war zone. Shortly afterwards, I ended up back in a war zone. And, um, you know, once again, it was the path of least resistance because although it sounds a bizarre statement, you know, the path of least resistance was me, but for me was going back to the thing I knew. Um, it was the easy option at that time. And the best thing about it was, I mean, I earned more money over there as a contractor in Iraq, you know, in two months than I earned in a whole year in the special forces. So I now look at that and say, well, that's, you know, I call it fool's gold because I'd never go back to that environment because it was so corrosive to who I was as a person. You know, we were getting attacked on a regular basis and, you know, that then really set in stone a unhealthy uh, relationship with alcohol. Not when I was working, but when I was not working, you know, any any time we had off, hit the bottle. Everyone else was doing it, but I think I was doing it more than everyone else. The anxiety of living in a war zone and, and being hung over. Then I started taking Valium. And, you know, you don't need to be a psychiatrist to understand that Valium, alcohol dependency and being shot at is not the best trio. And it was really paying a massive toll on my mental health. So I actually decided to get out of there because I think if I didn't go of my own accord, I'd have come back in a box. So I managed to leave around about 2005. I was living in Australia at the time, started to get into property, et cetera, et cetera, started to get some stability. And then I heard something that really got my attention, and that was uh, saving kids from child prostitution and slavery in Southeast Asia. So I ended up going out to Southeast Asia, and um, it was the it was the best thing ever. You know, that missing piece in the military, I suddenly found. And when I say that, the reason is, is because I, for the first time in my life, I was right at the coalface of being in service of others. And the power of helping other people is the best return on investment I've ever made. You know, so that really was an epiphany for me. And it was also the heartbeat and the DNA for Breakpoint. You know, my mission statement is to create a globally identified brand recognized for the positive growth and development of others. So I could keep on going on, Serena, but, you know, I'm not allowing you to talk whatsoever. So that's a snapshot of where I got to that point. Unfortunately for me, I thought I was going to be doing that in Southeast Asia for the rest of my life. It crumbled overnight because of a political uh, situation that, that occurred and we had to escape out of Thailand. And then when I returned to Australia, that is when my life fell apart. I hit the self-destruct button massively and drink everything I could get my hands on. And that's when it was, it was the lowest point in my life. And, but that would be my hardest battle, but my greatest discovery. Wow. I mean, yeah, that's definitely a story and, you know, a journey to this point where you are at now. You have, by the sounds of it, dealt with a lot of adversity, you know, even from that first moment, as you mentioned, when you were 10 years old and you were at the circus and, and then all of the experiences that you've had since then. Do you think that's sort of triggered something within you that has made you the type of personality and type of person to chase adrenaline-filled experiences and, and maybe kind of be someone who doesn't mind being faced with the death in the same way as a civilian would? Yeah, I, I do. Look, I mean, someone asked me a question. It's pretty much rhetorical because I don't know the answer. And they say, do you think you'd have got into the special forces if you'd not have been attacked by the chimp 
And um, it's a really good question, but I don't know the answer to that because I haven't got an alternative journey to compare to. But really for me, you know, look, I say that there was positive and negative around that, you know, attack at 10 years old. That did push me into um, really seeking that, you know, not being satisfied, really seeking as much as I could out of life. But I didn't know where to direct that energy. I didn't understand who I was as a person. I didn't understand about purpose. And with not knowing that, all that energy, it's like a sailboat that's being blown around in the wind that's got no no rudder and no compass bearing. You know, for me, when I hit the ground and hit the ground hard, you know, when I came back from from Thailand, from Southeast Asia, that was the first time that epiphany, that my greatest discovery was when I started to really discover who I was. And that for me was at that moment when I started to think about suicide, I always say that I never attempted it. I don't know if I would have. But, you know, when it comes to stuff like the fact I was there was a wake up call for me. You know, that voice I heard, I heard again. It doesn't end like this, Ollie. And for the first time, I was prepared to take responsibility for who I was, where I was and the situation I found myself in my environment. You know, we are programmed to think that everything is external. So when I say about taking responsibility, it's such a strong word because for the first time in my life, I stopped blaming the outside world world for where I was. I stopped blaming the chimp. I stopped blaming the military. I stopped blaming my upbringing. Yes, these things happen to us in our life, but how we deal with them is really down to us. That's our responsibility. So for me, all the way through my life, you know, my answer to it all was trying to numb out what was going up in my head. When really, that's what I needed to deal with. Now, when I crashed and burned at that stage, for the first time in my life, I took responsibility. It was the first time I couldn't blame the outside world or stop blaming the outside world. I took responsibility and that made me look within. That forced me to look within. And that's why I say it was my greatest discovery, because that is where the answers are. It's not out there. You know, your external fix or anything, happiness, whatever it is, is not out there. It's within. If you fail to look within, your results are going to be extremely limited. And I think people definitely associate you with characteristics like having a lot of discipline and resilience and motivation and all of those types of characteristics. But do you think if if you have had quite a difficult life, I suppose, or had experienced challenges in a way that maybe other people haven't, you are more equipped to be able to then go on to have these really strong characteristics? 100% Serena I really do and you know I think having near-death experience there's nothing like that as a wake-up call you know and for me I've had you know my first one was at 10 it wasn't my last one that you know I'm not saying people need to go out there and have a near-death experience to really get the value of life but I really do think that when you do have experiences like that then it does make you more resilient it does make you start to value life a hell of a lot more it certainly did for me but really, you have to start to understand, you know, it's like people look at me as someone that's resilient, someone that's determined, someone that's disciplined, et cetera, et cetera. I don't find it easy. It's not like a walk in the park for me. I'm just like everyone else. I bleed and breathe just like everyone else. And, you know, and that's why my second book was called Battle Ready, because it's not about going to a war zone. Being the best version of yourself each and every day and being that constant model of improvement is a battle. You know, and it's, it's so important that we understand, you know, I go through, I have the same stuff going through my head you know, that negativity, that voice, but I've learned to understand my emotions and I'm no longer a victim of my emotions. So when I hear the negativity, when I hear the, you know, lack of motive, I understand why that happens because I've really got to understand the source code of who I am as a human, who we all are as humans. You know, a lot of people on this planet will go to their graves without even knowing who they are. 
you know, and really the majority of people are so busy tiptoeing through life, just hoping they make it to death safely. You've really got to try and get the most out of everything. That's why the company is called Breakpoint. Step into the short-term discomfort for long-term gain. You've got to know or you've got to have a destination that you know you're going to, i.e. a goal. Otherwise, you're taking a, a short-term detour into discomfort for no apparent reason. And then we're flung back, back into the monotonous habit loop of who we are because that's just our human nature. Humans don't like change. You know, we want to know, you know, our, our brain works off memory and past experience and emotion. So when we come into moving into uncharted territory, there's all kinds of alarm bells going on. If the, if our brain can't see the path from a previous, a previous experience, it tries to deter us from taking that path. And we've got to start to understand our humanness, how we're wired. And like I said before, the source code of who we are. You know, just know if you know you're going down a certain path, you know, right, I know I'm not going to feel motivated. I know I'm not going to feel inspired, especially when the stress is on. If you're pre-prepared for that, you'll get through it a lot easier. Otherwise, if you're not, you just flung back into the monotonous repeat habit loop of yesterday. And that's what I do at Breakpoint. I start to get people to understand how we're wired, why we do the things that we do. And you've got to look, we've been evolving on this planet for a long, 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 long time. Technology is flying past us at a massive rate, and it's about understanding we're still working from that primal instinct of who we are. I mean, a big thing for me, Serena, a massive thing for me at that point um, when I did crash and burn was I started to analyze my life for the first time, questioning all the things I was doing that was, that was taking a fair amount of my time and what value that offered to my life. Big thing for me was alcohol and any kind of substance for that reason. You know, for me, I, I looked and a massive part of my life was consumed with drinking. You know, and it wasn't the fact I was drinking day in, day out. It's the fact that you'd be working all week just to, you know, absolutely dying to get to the weekend. You know, the word hump day and all that, I absolutely hate those words because it's, if, you, if you're happy about hump day, it means you're not happy about each and every day. You know, you're just fighting to get to the weekend. So for me, I started to eliminate all these things that were consuming my time. I started to ask myself three questions. And I'm talking in the longer term picture here, not just the short term. Does it add value? Do I enjoy it? Does it help others? If I can't tick one of those questions, it has to go. So really, for me, it was a start to eliminate all the things that were holding me back, you know, and that was that was relationships. That was drinking. That was all, all kinds of manner of things. And really start to establish in a routine that starts to really build that strong growth from the roots up. You know, we really need to build that root structure. And then if any storm hits us from any angle, we're not just going to fall over. You know, and it's about really learning to be dynamic and adaptable uh, and not waiting for the uh, environment to adapt to us. I want to come back to something that you said, which is, going through a short period of uncomfortability to be able to achieve your goal or achieve something much better. And it's having that recognition that you are going to go through a bit of pain, but the payoff is going to be worth it in the end. That's something that people face all the time. So business owners definitely face that in a big scale going through the graft of starting their business. Also people who are trying to get fit or lose weight. That's something that they will try to do by going through a, a small amount of pain to achieve a payoff. It's very common in those moments to have so much doubt and to give up. 
So what do you tell yourself in those moments, in those moments where it feels too much and you want to give up? How do you overcome that in your mind? Yeah, great question. And then something I've got a lot of uh, content on. So, so let me just explain what breakpoint is for me or for anyone really, but it's a disruptive change in habitual behavior in line with a predetermined goal. 95% of our behavior is habitual. So really it's about understanding that we're going to do something that's going to disrupt that habitual behavior. And we have to make sure that we know where we're going. And we have to make sure that that place that we're going gives us so much passion and determination that we're prepared to put up with the discomfort of change to get to it. Now, I always say it like this, right? Imagine we were walking down by, you know, in the winter and we're near a freezing cold lake. And I said, Serena, jump in there, go on. Would you do it? No. <laughs> no, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> okay, now imagine if I push the person that you love the most into that lake. Now, would you even question jumping in that lake? I wouldn't question it. I would jump in. Exactly. And that means at the end of the day that your why is so much stronger than the discomfort of change. Going back to your question of what happens in that moment when you are feeling lack of motivation, like for me, when I got off the bus, I talked about selection. I got off the bus, looked around me. The easiest thing to do, and my mind is trying to get me to do that, is get back on the bus. It's the easiest option. It's a short-term fix. It's the Band-Aid. But I tell you now, if I got back on that bus, as soon as I got off and it was qualified that I was no longer taking part in that selection process, that would have absolutely plagued me for the rest of my life. You know what I mean? It would have been great in the short term. And this is how we're wired. We're, we're wired to take short-term short comfort that leads to long-term pain. That can be your relationships, drinking, your jobs, everything. But you've got to just understand we're wired in the opposite manner. So really just understanding and going into any situation, if you don't sort of go in with a mindset, look, I am to know what you're going to expect, you are going to fail. You are going to decide, yeah, this is not for me and turn back. You know, I've seen it so many times on the show, SAS Who Dares Wins. You know, Katie Price was a typical example. And I've seen it time and time again. You know, people just throw in the towel when it's getting far too much. And then all of a sudden, 30 seconds after that, the task had finished anyway. And you can see their face. Their face is absolutely falling apart thinking, oh, my God, why did I do that? You know, it's just understanding that's the, if we're not aware, and I'm, the word awareness, right, is, is something that changed my life, you know, or, or actually starting to become aware of the, of the thoughts and the, the emotions that are going on inside of us, learning to be aware of them and having some kind of filter, that is the key to it all. But really, for me, it's like if you've got that strong why, that goal that you're chasing, then it's going to dilute any discomfort on the way to it. But like three types of goals, A-type goals, are goals that you know you can achieve. You know, that's the language of the ego. Our ego doesn't want to look like a failure. So it hates to choose things or it wants to choose things that know we can achieve, you know. And from the outside looking in, everyone goes, well, well done, you completed that. That's not a goal. You know, that's the only person you're cheating there is yourself. Second type of goal is a little bit of planning and structure. You know you can get there. Again, that's not a goal. If you can see the path to target, that's not really a goal. C-type goals are when you have absolute pure fantasy. You don't know how you're going to get there, but it's something you, you have set your heart on that you want to achieve. And those C-type goals are the ones that will pull you through any discomfort. Me starting that company, Breakpoint, when I was battered, bruised, and in a really bad place mentally, 
my mind was telling me all sorts and rightly so as well at that time it was like you're a loser you can't even string a sentence together you know you can't shut me up these days but um how can you help anyone look at look at the state of you all these things that are going on in my head i didn't know the path to get to there but that's what i fell in love with to start that business that really helped other people that was my passion and that passion really started to dilute that negativity that message that was going on and I, I started with a process that took baby steps. It took me 12 months to get to it. And in between that time, I got the TV show, which then catapulted me from, from sub-zero to the top of the mountain. You know, it was, it was absolutely incredible. So really, it's just understanding that you don't need to see the path. You don't need to see the footprints. You create them. You mention the importance of having goals anyway and, and that focus on those goals will really take you through those difficult moments. When you are facing those moments of self-doubt, and that's something that you've mentioned that you've experienced yourself, what do you do in those moments? How do you deal with self-doubt? You know, some people think, oh, well, Ollie won't have self-doubt. We all have self-doubt. It's a, it's a natural thing within, it's our humanness. That's, that's a natural thing within everyone. You are going to go through self-doubt. But if you're prepared for it, it's not such a shock to the system. The more you focus on anything, the bigger it becomes. So if you allow that message to be that dominant message in your mind, it's going to win. And this really, for me, is when you start to have a positive affirmation that really starts to dilute that message. So as soon as that negativity comes in, bang, you throw in that positive uh, affirmation. And the more you do that, you brainwash in yourself in the same manner that the negativity has brainwashed you into believing you can't do it. The thing at the end of the day, I talk about going back to the source code of who we are. Everyone's wired negatively. It's the way we're wired. You know, that goes back to uh, our primal days that, you know, we used to come out of our caves, not looking for opportunities in networking. We used to come out looking for anything that's going to cause us any danger. We're looking for anything, uh, anything that could go wrong. We still have that primal instinct. And it's just understanding that if we don't take positive action in the direction of our goals, I think you've got around about five seconds of the scientific proof around that before your mind starts talking you out of it. When it comes to goals as well, you know, some people go, oh, well, I don't have goals. You do. Every person on the planet has goals because our subconscious mind is a goal-striving, goal-getting machine that stops at nothing till it gets what your dominant thoughts focus on. So people who have sat there year after year going, my life hasn't really changed. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm no further forward than I was last year. That's a choice. And at the end of the day, one thing I say to everyone, a lot of people when I do my corporate talks and stuff is like, think about this for a second, that if you aren't stepping into that short-term discomfort on a regular basis, you are today all you're ever going to be. You are today all you're ever going to be. I think the problem, though, really comes from the fact that we're being fooled into believing that this utopia in life is a problem-free, hassle-free, don't have to do anything life. That's utopia. Laying on the beach, just lying there, you know, for two weeks of every year, just going, oh, this is brilliant. That for me is an absolute nightmare. I'm not saying it is for everyone, but it is for me, you know, but at the end of the day, that's not the utopia. The fact of the matter is we were born out of struggle. We thrive from struggle. And I thank God for problems because it makes me grow. It makes us grow. You know, if you haven't got any problems in your life, if you haven't got anything that's challenging you, you are going to have a very flat and boring life. Not only that, you will go through some level of depression at some stage. Definitely. I think if you 
look at adversity and challenge in your life as a as an opportunity to grow and actualize it can mean that when challenge does arise you don't fear from it and you don't shy away from it so I think that's definitely a really important point to pick up on but going back to uh, what you were saying about the importance of reframing your mind and really being aware of negative thoughts and sort of offcutting it with a positive thought to, to try and reframe your mind if you do have a mind that's full of negative thoughts. With the work that you do with managers and leaders in the corporate sector, what would you say is the most common limiting belief that people who are managers and business leaders tend to have? There's a lot of prehistoric leadership out there, and it's really, it's more like a dictatorship, which I refer back to not so much in the special forces because it was a very different type of leadership and certainly one that, um, you know, I, I, I refer to a lot more in these days than, than being actually in the Royal Marines and being in the big green army, which was more hierarchical. Yeah, so so really at the end of the day is the fact that, you know, the, the, when it comes to leadership, people have this, really odd view of how they should lead. I mean, I, I was extremely spoiled in the special forces because every person of that team was a leader. You know, it's the understanding. I really feel that we should take some of these examples of leadership from the special forces and use them within, you know, make your team like a special forces team. You're all a group of leaders. You're all subject matter experts in your field. And if you don't value people for what they can bring to the team and you don't value them as a leader, they won't give you their best. You know, I, I always say this, right? A good leader will get their people to believe in them as a leader. An exceptional leader will not only do that, but he will get each and every member of his team to believe and value themselves. That's exceptional leadership. And when you've got that, when you've got each and every person really firing from that sense of leadership and being part of, you know, an integral part of that team, it's a whole different uh, manner of leadership. I think also, you know, really leadership for me is when a leader can also fall into line and be a team player. You know, for us, you imagine like a special forces team, you know, at any point, you know, you're going to take over a building or whatever, or hostage release or whatever. You're going up to the door and, you know, you've got to call the demolitions expert forward. At that point, that demolitions expert, he takes the lead. He's the leader. And that leader then sits back into the team and becomes a team player. And being that sort of chameleon of leadership really makes an effective team. But really, I think at the end of the day, I think a lot of leaders, they have a lot of self-doubt. They don't believe in themselves. And I think a lot of the problem is the fact they focus far too much on themselves, you know, and not the people around them. You know, I see a lot of mistakes as well with leadership when it comes to understanding that no two people are the same. You know, like people expect us to be all the same from a special forces background or we're the same with, you know, we're very different. But really, it's just understanding no two people are the same. People do things differently. You know, when people don't do something, when you delegate, which is also something that a lot of leaders can't do, uh, when you delegate, when it's not done to the same standard as you, you can't start to fire off. I mean, for me as a business owner, I pay the lease on the building. You know, I'm a lot more passionate than the people that work for me for that reason alone. But, you know, this is my heart and soul. Breakpoint's my heart and soul. So when I do ask people to do something, they're not going to do it to the same standard as me. But then look at the reverse of that. When people do do it to a better standard, you can't leave that unrecognized. Because if you do and you allow that to go on and you take the glory for that without giving any significant validation to the person that's you know done well there, your team won't work for you. 
you know, so I think there's a lot of faults with leadership, but um, really, um, you know, I think a lot of leadership is, is just the fact that people focus on themselves far too much as opposed to focusing on the people around them who really support them. Yeah, it definitely is very important for a leader to be able to empower their team towards a common goal and and really instill that cohesiveness within a team. But it's very common for business leaders to witness competitiveness within teams as well. And that's a very common thing that arises. I mean, it can be a good thing because it can really push those individuals to be the best that they can be, but it can also lead to a fragmented team. So how do you advise business leaders on how they can cultivate camaraderie and cohesiveness? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, you know, I do believe there's got to be an area of competition, especially when you deal with like a sales kind of background, that kind of, there's got to be some level of competition. Now, going back to that thing that I did in Thailand, rescuing the kids from child prostitution slavery, it was the first time I started to really reflect on the power of helping other people. Investment in others is investment in you. I wasn't being paid for that. I used the money from Iraq to fund that operation. But like I say, it was a life-changing situation for me. But we deal with a lot of corporates, but you know, even in a close-knit corporate team or even in like a Premier League football team or any kind of you know, high-performing sports team, we're losing the art of collaboration, you know, and we're focused on co- competition over collaboration. I would say it like this, like, I love the sea and I spend a lot of my time on the coast, but, you know, you see two waves hit each other full on, they cancel each other out, but you see two waves join and they make a formidable wave, an unstoppable force. And that's really what we need to start doing, you know, have the air of competition, but let's look at focusing on collaboration, leave the harsh competition for the people outside that organization. You know, I mean, we've spoke to businesses before you get the top performer in any business who wins their awards year on, year out. You know, they're always in the top five or whatever. And you ask them to stand at the front and say, point to the number of people that this year have asked you, phoned you up and said, hey, can I take you out for lunch? Can I take you out for, let's go for a coffee and have picked your brains on how well you're doing. And I'll tell you now, it's always non. That to me is like madness. I mean, anyone that's doing really well has no problem sharing how they've got to where they've got. You know, they've got no inferiority complex. They're quite happy to share in their wealth of knowledge about how they're doing, you know, their wins. So really, it's, it's the people that aren't doing well that haven't got the courage to stand up and say, could you give me some advice? Because it's almost like a hand up saying, no, no, I'm not doing well. You know, and that's the ego again, stepping in. So really, it's about collaboration. You know, if departments are doing something better in a different region, speak to them, go and see them for the day, do something, get their top players in, whatever it is, you know, all that collaboration and really work from the inside out. A lot of people, again, because we are wired externally for external validation and, you know, is the fact that a lot of people think, how can we increase business and productivity, et cetera? And we're always looking from the outside in, but look on the inside and work out. And that's really what Breakpoint you know, focuses on. That's why it doesn't matter what business you work in. And it might sound a bit cliche saying your, your best asset is the people that work for you, but it absolutely is. Because you can have the best product, the best service, best whatever in the world. But if your people are just working in their own silos, then you've got an issue. You know, you're not going to perform to the best of your ability. So really, it's about working from each individual, making sure that they've got a strong root system of growth. And once you work on every individual, those people that then come together, they are like an unstoppable force. 
You know, I, I, I honestly, if your competition's doing that and you're not doing it, they're going to absolutely walk, paint the wall with you. I really like that idea of putting your ego aside and, and just being vulnerable to accepting and acknowledging that you don't know everything. And hopefully that will install that within your team as well. And if you're all coming together to try and find a solution and looking outwards as well, then that can build a really cohesive team. Um, yeah, that's a really important point. Really, I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt there, but I think that's also, that's a great point. I think that also goes back to leadership. You know, you asked me the questions about, you know, what the doubts that leaders face. And I think at the end of the day, one of the things that they fool themselves into believing that they should know everything. Do you know what I mean? It's like if they don't look like they know everything, it looks like they're they're weak. You know, it's like me, when I started in business, I thought I wasn't great in business because I, you know, I struggled doing like all this stuff with accounts and all, da, 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 all that. And as we grew, then I could delegate that stuff out. But I believe, well, you know, I started to think, well, I, I can't be that good in business because I don't know how to do every aspect of being in business. And it's not about that, is it? You know, you, you, that's that's at that point, that's where you delegate those things out that you struggle with. But really, it's about leaders understanding that you're not, you don't have all the knowledge, you don't have all the experience, and that's why you've got a team. You know, and if you don't encourage that to come to the forefront of your team because you're so insecure, you're really limiting your productivity and what you can deliver. Yeah, and I think a lot of business leaders were faced with that and forced to face that over the pandemic, especially where they were forced to acknowledge and be open about the, the fact that they didn't have all the answers in that moment. And now business leaders are facing this again with the prospect of a recession and various issues in the global economy. What advice would you give to a business leader about facing uncertainty and challenges around uncertainty? I'll tell you what, when something we learned from, I think it's such a valid thing. It comes helps in all facets of my life. But one thing we refer to is uh, one meter square. One meter square psychology is when all around you is falling apart, you bring everything back to one meter square. You focus on your immediate environment and don't allow the outside world to influence that progression moving forward. You know, we can sit there panicking about this, that and the other, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's going to be a session. There's going to be this. At the end of the day, we create our own individual economy. You know, you can't change the environment. And it's, this is a lot of people, you know, when it came through the pandemic, there's a lot of businesses that, first of all, they were waiting for the environment to adapt to them. Oh, we'll wait till it's like it was. Trying to be who we were before the pandemic. That's just like trauma. We have an innate self-preservation system within us that when we go through a traumatic event, let's go back to when I was 10 years old, that we lock away that intimate trauma to get through the short term. Now, first of all, when it comes to trauma, you can't just leave that. You know, you have to address it at some point. But the fact of the matter is a lot of people are then, you know, they struggle with trauma because they're fighting to be who they were before the incident. You're not that person anymore. You're not that business anymore. You're not that organization anymore. So the more you fight to be what you were, the more you're going to struggle to actually be productive and, and really start, you know, being dynamic. And like I said before, like be that chameleon. It doesn't matter about the environment. We create our own economy. We go through hard times. We go through good times. You know, everyone can be a good leader in, in good times. You know, when it comes to recession, when it comes to lockdown, when it comes to all that stuff, that's when your leadership, it has to be on point. And it's going to be absolutely transparent who you are in those moments. So really for anyone, it's about trying to block out all that noise. I know you've got to respect what's going on. But listen, the more you focus on anything, the bigger it becomes. If your mindset is, oh, recession, 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 
the recession is going to hit you harder than anyone. You know, there is always opportunity in crisis. Well, three things I'll say is, first of all, accept what is because you can't change that. Harvest the good and forgive everything else. You know, at the end of the day, you can't change anything. Harvest the good from everything. Silver lining. Look for the silver lining and really focus on the opportunities in that crisis. But listen, if you're that person that just can't handle anything negative, you know, when it comes to doom and gloom, you know, as a leader, you've got to show that unwavering courage. Courage is the ability to throw yourself into anything without the guarantee of a successful outcome. You know, and that's where your peers, that's where your team are going to be looking to you for guidance and direction and confidence. You know, as a special forces leader, you know what I mean? You are always in a negative situation, so to speak. You know, this is both a blessing and a curse, but not so good when you leave the military. We were, we were trained to be in flowing chaos. I look back at that now and then understand why I had so many problems, you know, being a civilian and, and coming into the outside world because we weren't comfortable until we were in chaos. And that's when we really started to feel like we we're doing our job at that point. But the trouble is you can't be a leader and just be an exceptional leader when the, when the sun shines. This won't be the last one. You know, it's not, it's not like get through this and then that's going to be it. You know, there's this going to be hard points for a business, for any business going forward. So it's how you shine as a leader in those moments that's really going to test you and really build a solid and um, reliable team. That's a really insightful perspective. Thank you, Ollie. Something that's very unique about your life experience is the fact that the prospect of death was so high and frequent throughout various points in your life. And that is very unique for any person to experience. So this is quite a big question, but what do you think that taught you about life? Yeah, at the end of the day, I think this, I think this really blends into the last question, Serena, because, you know, I know it's not death, you know, going through a recession or whatever, but at the end of the day, it's the same kind of attitude. Do you know what I mean? You imagine if we went to, into any kind of operation, into anything in my, in my life that, you know, it got dangerous. And I started to, and I can remember this moment, actually, when I was actually, when I was a civilian, and I, I was attacked on the highway in Baghdad. I'd not been there long and I got attacked. I was heavily outnumbered by militia. And I can remember at that point, it was the first time in my life I felt so vulnerable because I was, I was always used to having a team around me so highly trained that you would actually invite that stuff. And for the first time in my life, I couldn't call in air support. You couldn't call in naval gunfire. All I had was my number two with me. We had eight militia. You know, we're driving a vehicle at 130 k's an hour being shot at. And I can remember that moment just before um, when that started happening. I was driving the vehicle. And I can remember the first time in my life I was so overwhelmed with fear. And I, like I say, I'd never been there before because I had that close-knit team around me. And I started to then engage on all the things that could go wrong. And that, for me, sent me into, I was starting to freeze and I'm driving the car, you know, and I've got people shooting at me from behind. And it was in that moment that I had to triage that situation. And I realized in that moment as well, you know, my my breathing had become extremely reactive. Cortisol started to increase, gave me a mindset of confusion and not clarity. And it was almost like when the bullets went down, it clicked me out of that and took me back to my special forces training. I breathed like I'd not breathed in the last minute, which straight away lowered that cortisol gave me clarity about what I had to do. You know, and I realized in that second that I can't focus on all the things that could go wrong. Fear is just a mental and emotional rehearsal for something you don't want to go wrong. You can't allow that to control you. It's about really being that emotional observer 
and really getting in charge and, and getting in the driving seat of your emotions. So I realized in that moment, you know, of all things, when I say triage the situation, stop thinking about what could go wrong. You know, I had mass overwhelming responsibility for the people I was protecting that day. Forget them. I know that sounds harsh, but there's one thing I really needed to focus on. And that was the people behind me shooting at me. And that's what I did in that moment. Forget everything out, deal with that, triage the situation and deal with that. Now, in special forces, well, in any kind of military, they always read the mission out twice. Now, that can be as simple as, you know, you're flying to target, locate the hostage, move to the extraction point and come back to the headquarters, to the FOB. Now, they read that twice because they want that message to be so firmly implanted in your mind that when the bombs and the bullets go off, that is the dominant thought in your mind. You know, so really, I deal with everything this way. You know, at the end of the day, you know, you can't focus on the how. You've got to focus on the why. If you focus on the how, you'll think of every reason why it can't be done and every obstacle will present itself. So it's really about having that positive mindset, whatever, having that courage to throw yourself into anything. You don't need the guaranteed outcome. Heading for things that you can't see the path to. I guess it's really having that fundamentally positive mindset. So, I mean, that is how I deal with everything, regardless of what it is. You know, and at the end of the day, things go wrong. You know, I haven't got a perfect life. Believe me, things go wrong. Things don't, you know, don't go to plan. That's just life. And um, you can't allow that to upset your journey. But one thing I will say that I, I say this to in a lot of my presentations, that failure is an absolute weapon. If I'm not failing, my goals aren't big enough. If I'm not failing, I'm not growing. Failure in its most common terms is when you stop Decide to not continue on that path and go back to where you were. But really, I, I really wish people would teach kids this, you know, because in this world that everyone's painting this fake perfection or fake imperfection, you know, we really need to understand that failure is where we grow. It's where we learn. It's where we grow. So it's about every time that things don't go right. What did I learn from that? What did I do well? What didn't I do well? How am I going to do it differently if I did it again? And all these lessons are just like, like I say, understanding that, you know, that utopia of no problems, no nothing, everything smooth, no stress, that is hell, not utopia. The idea of welcoming adversity or not, not even welcoming it, but not being afraid of it when it arises is really crucial to dissipating fear as well. So that fear isn't necessarily at the forefront yeah that's really insightful thank you Ollie but um, unfortunately we have come to the end of the podcast but we like to finish every podcast with a segment called answer the internet and this is where we scour the internet for the questions that the public needs the answers to and the question we'll put to you today Ollie is from reddit and it's from a user called frontier bot and they ask how am I supposed to find motivation in life? All right, let's just address this because this word motivation it is something that's not a consistent. I don't care if you're a special forces soldier. I don't care if you're an astronaut, a gold medalist. You will not have consistent levels of motivation in your life. At the end of the day, you have to create passion for something you want to achieve. But on the path to that, you are not going to feel motivated for everything I've talked about in this presentation or this podcast. You know, you are going to go into that. You know, everyone goes through that honeymoon period. I want to achieve this. I want to go to the gym. I want to look like this. I want to stop this. I want to get the promotion. You are on a honeymoon high for a short while. But when the harsh reality hits of going into the stressful work, that's when you're going to lack the motivation. 
you know, so just understand motivation is not going to be there and everyone is the same. So don't start thinking, oh, well, this is me and my goal is not really, it's not really something that I, I want to achieve or anything like that. It is something you want to achieve, but our minds are wired to go for the path of least resistance. So just understand motivation will not be there. And that's where discipline takes over. That's why the military is so good at what they do, especially the special forces. You know, when all around you is falling apart, we don't look for motivation. We look for process. Go from A to B to C to D, get to the extraction point, fly out. So, yeah, would you say that that just following the process is an important aspect of, of being motivated? Yeah, 100%, 100%. But first of all, you've got to make sure that what, you, what you're heading for, what you're aiming for, is something that strikes the passion in you. It's, it creates enthusiasm. You know, even on the journey to your target, to whatever you're aiming for, it has to incite enthusiasm. You know, so first of all, a lot when it comes to aiming for stuff that you want to achieve, that's a goal. When you come up with these goals, you've got to understand they have to be for you, not for the audience. So really, you know, if you start to lack a lot of motivation and really question your ability to to create any kind of enthusiasm, you've got to start questioning why you're on that path anyway. You know, so understand that, you know, if you don't feel any kind of motivation whatsoever, you know, even after understanding that you are going to feel that short-term discomfort and have to get through it, then you really need to question why you're heading towards it. That's really interesting. Thank you, Ollie. Our next question, we do ask all of our guests and we are Business Leader Magazine. So uh, it is what makes a great business leader? What makes a great business leader is... Well, I would like to go back to what I said earlier in this presentation, and that is, you know, a great business leader, a good business leader is someone that gets their people to really see value in them as a leader. An exceptional business leader is someone that gets their people to see the value in themselves. So it's really about getting everyone around you that works with you and for you to start seeing the value in themselves. Yeah, definitely. That's a very important aspect of being a great business leader. And finally, do you have any last words for our listeners today, Ollie? Yeah, the last thing I'd like to say is, you know, regardless of your work, your job, uh, you know, your work, your family, whatever it is, you are the most important project there is. You know, I know it's a cliche, but there's a reason why they say when you go on an aircraft, you know, in an emergency, please look and put your own mask on first before helping someone else. That's really good analogy for life. You know, at the end of the day, focus on yourself, invest in yourself. It's the best investment you can make. You create that ground or that root system of strength. You are a better asset to everyone around you, personal and professional. Amazing. And where can our listeners find you on social media and find out more about Breakpoint? Yeah, I mean, most predominant sort of social media is is Instagram, really, or LinkedIn as well. We're, we're starting to do a lot more on LinkedIn these days. So Ollie.Ollerton, or, or just put that into a search engine. And also um, a company website, which is break-point.co.uk. 